Today on China Talk, the Chips Avengers have assembled. Uh, we have here today Reva Gujan from the Rhodium Group, Jay Goldberg of Digits and Dollars, currently raising a chips investment fund. Uh, deep, deep tech, deep tech venture fund. Yep. Deep, deep tech venture funds. We have Doug O'Loughlin, <laughs> author of the Fabricated Knowledge Substack, and Martin Chorzempa of the Peterson Institute, and recently published cashless revolution here to unpack what the biden administration's export controls mean for the future of humanity thanks so much for coming on china talk everyone so for this episode we are going to assume knowledge that you will have gained as an audience if you listen to my interview with kevin wolf uh, a few weeks ago so if you haven't listened to that i would pause this show and then come back here for this conversation. Let's get normative for a second. Was this the right thing for the Biden administration to do? And if we don't want to, you know, come to an answer to that, what do you think are the kind of factors or analytic questions that you would need to answer in order to come to a judgment on whether or not these policy moves were, oh, uh, the right in retrospect? This is Jay Goldberg. So I, I think right is a, is a difficult word to use. I think it's a little provocative, um, deliberately, I would guess. But my question is, right for what? And one of the things that I've really puzzled over in, since these rules have come down is, what is the government really seeking to achieve? How, how narrow or how broad is, is the scope of it? I mean, the, the scope is very broad. Was that the intent? What's the, what's the end goal? And I think... Um, certainly some things are going to work very well. Other, other parts of it, I think are going to be very problematic. And so if we talk about right, I think it's, it's, we need to sort of establish what the goal was. And that's, that's, a, I know that's a tricky question. I don't know that there's an answer to it, but it's, it's a, it's tricky there. Yeah, Jordan, I, this is Reva. Um, I, I am hesitant to jump into the normative just because I, I have to always start with the why, right? And uh, what's really driving such a comprehensive package of controls at this juncture. And I think one layer of this, of course, is the strategic composition element, right? And as the U.S. is, is scanning China's strengths and weaknesses, where does it have leverage over choke points? Where can it really hit hard? And I think some of the, the real novelty in these controls showcases how it's concomitantly narrow and broad and very deliberately so, right? And what it prioritizes and where it, it goes very broad and say, we want to know what inputs are going into China, period. And companies are just going to be subject to U.S. licensing as a result. Uh, but there's also another layer here on the why, which is petty politics as well, right? When we look at just the political drivers of, you know, trying to... Uh, outmuscle one another on on China policy and really set the bounds for this debate uh, because there are lots of while while China you know can be a very bipartisan issue on one level on another level the tactics you can see a lot of variants right you, a lot of proposals of how a new export control regime should be structured and so here's the White House coming out ahead and saying well these are the technologies that matter these are the thresholds that we're going to define. And these are the tools uh, that we're either going to going to adapt or, or create anew, um, which is what I think creates some really interesting implications ahead. Yeah. Martin, maybe you want to take a, a step back and talk about, like, what is the strategic direction of all of this? And does it make sense to you? Sure. So I mean, the signaling for this really goes back to Jake Sullivan's speech uh, a few weeks ago, where he said specifically on export controls, we're no longer okay with being a generation or two ahead. We want to be much further in foundational technologies like chips. And, and so if we're thinking about the goals of this, I think there's been a shift away from trying to freeze or hold back China's uh, advances in chips. And I see this as an attempt to roll back and degrade China's existing capabilities. China can produce 14 to 16 nanometer logic chips. BRN can produce, you know, GPUs that are at these uh, thresh, uh, thresholds. 
and YMTC can produce NAND at uh, the levels of this threshold too. So what's very interesting is that they did not set the thresholds at kind of an aspirational level for China. They set them for levels that China already is able to do, and it's cutting off their ability to do it. And that's what raises all sorts of really interesting questions about unintended consequences, uh, where you know you might have a lot of American equipment in those fabs that might be bricked. Uh, it's hard for me to tell, trying to parse the regulations, if it's going to be possible for the technicians to be in there continuing to maintain these machines. And the fact that China is already at this level tells you that you know the, the Biden administration saw that this was a, a bit of a rush. They had, they felt like they had to do this now because otherwise, maybe the you know the insert your metaphor about the cows leaving the barn and not being able to put them back in again. Um, and and that we're only going to see the impacts of this uh, playing out over a while. We're not going to be able to tell right away. So so then so staying at that question for a second is I, I want to set the like should the U.S. compete with China piece aside for this conversation at least. But like if you've decided that the U.S. is in a decade long you know tussle with China over sort of retaining you know, a national power advantage, however you want to define it. Like, is is this threshold um, the right one? I mean, it feels like it's kind of hard to know. And there's a piece of it where you read these regulations where they say, look, you know, this is really what matters most for, you know, nuclear, ballistic, whatever technology. Um, kind of unspoken is that this may be also what matters most from a sort of economic commercial competition perspective. Yeah. Um, curious, Jay and Doug, your take on, um, uh, on uh, you know, whether the where they set the line is something that, um, you know, whether yeah. whether if you if you take U.S. China competition as a premise, you would have set the line here or maybe somewhere else. This is Doug, by the way. I thought what Martin said about um, not trying to cut off their future, but actually we're taking we're calling back some steps is a really good observation. Never thought about it that way because when you read it a little closer, uh, it's actually extremely arbitrary. So one of the first one of the first like uh, premises of the regulation is we're cutting off AI and HPC, and then they talk about we're. In cut off their ability to buy and make, uh, you know, buy from TSMC, et cetera. And they're also going to cut off their ability to be able to fab these kind of chips in the future. But if you go and do a closer look, um, a lot of the same technologies that they're using are actually technologies that uh, are used in 28 nanometer and even 40, like 40 nanometer. Like it, it's very backwards looking. So for example, some of the metal de deposition stuff is so broad and so encompassing that like a very broad uh, application of that would actually uh, would be able to put a stranglehold on a lot of um, even some lagging edge technologies. So I thought that from that perspective, it actually seems a little bit more punitive than in the past. Like if we think about this, like, you know, we're talking about the normative stuff, this in my view that this is kind of like, you know, the zeitgeist has been doing this for a long time, like from from ZTE and Huawei to now this is this is just the same story on a continuous on a continuous escalation path, right. But but now it seems like um, this time it's it's different. It's much more punitive and it's more broad. They start with like the assumption that uh, you're not good if you're on the list. Presumption of denial. So all this really, uh, to me, in terms of like, if you read it and you're like really fine combing it, um, there's a lot of discretion and it seems like the discretion was intentional so that there's a lot of levers to pull. And um, yeah, I think that's like they kind of have this stated purpose of AI, but then if you do like the analysis a little deeper, you're like, well, it could actually be almost anything. So I, I think that that was what really struck me was, you know, I lived in China for 10 years and I'm not an expert on China's legal system, but my interpretation always in China was that pretty much everything is, is illegal, uh, no matter what you do. And it's just a question of what they're going to enforce and who they're going to enforce it upon. And I yeah. really got that same vibe from these restrictions. Like here's a whole bunch of, very broad rules, some of which are incredibly precise and some of which are maddeningly broad, like AI. That's huge. Yeah. Right. What does that and, mean? And it's, and so like, and that goes back to my earlier question was, what's the ultimate goal here? Are, is the goal very narrow? Do we want to limit the PLA's ability to acquire advanced chips? Okay. That's, that's one goal. Is, is the goal to cripple China's semiconductor industry? Is the goal to hobble China's overall economy? Right. And those are three very different goals. And it's depending on how, what we're aiming for, those rules are going to be interpreted in very, very different ways. And, and so I, I've always been very curious what the government 
Department of Commerce, all the authors, really what their intent was, because it's not clear from the documents. Because I, I know what the Chinese government thinks. The Chinese government thinks it's the broadest, worst possible one. We're trying to hobble China's economy and growth. So that's how they interpret it. How are we really looking at it? Um, and and that's and and that that's going to answer a lot of the questions about how these rules are going to be implemented. And there are layers of objectives in play, right? And and this is there's another objective in that list, which is clawing back market share in areas where the U.S. is feeling some serious angst, like in memory, as we're seeing, right? I mean, that's what that's mm-hmm. probably the the hardest hit. Um, and both, you know, from especially if you're looking at a medium long term perspective, that. SK and Samsung being at the mercy of BIS licensing, which is a really uncomfortable position to be in, especially when you don't know what uh, is in store for you post-2024, right? You've got to start making longer-term decisions now. And China's, by the way, going to be paying attention to that as well. The U.S. is clearly trying to steer production out of China. It's signaling hard through real moves that now's the time. And usually what is that timeline? Uh, you know, it's it's a three to five year usually is what you hear back. Give us the time to adapt. So interesting also from a retaliatory perspective as companies start to restructure their supply chains and mitigate risk, uh, does that also make them bigger targets as we get into that three to five year time frame? Before we get to the retaliatory stuff, I do want to talk a little bit about memory. Um, because I, you know, a lot of the justification within the reg, the regs was talking about supercomputers and and sort of missile modeling or whatever. I don't think you need fancy memory chips to do that. You do not. Um, memory support uh, is kind of a commodity, right? They're they're interchangeable. Yeah. That Apple can go get it from YMTC. They can get it from Micron. They can get it from Samsung. So um, if you if that's the if that's the stated the stated purpose, then it's just like it, it doesn't make any sense because everyone needs memory. Every every logic device has memory on uh, paired to it. So it seems kind of arbitrary, but but there is a good statement. There is like a good like like you could maybe make um, like kind of a, a like a logical assumption because memory is one of the things that really matters for um, AI, especially DRAM. Um, and so you're like, well, we're going to cut off the, you know, the memory latency and, and better memory because that's really important for the entire mo- models, uh, AI model computing power. So that's like maybe a logical thrust, but then how they actually implement it seems much more punitive. Uh, there's an interesting point here, which is that the, the, the really big gun, which is the foreign direct product rule, was not applied to the memory, to the DRAM, to the logic chips. It was only applied to the AI chips specifically and the supercomputer controls so like why my understanding of the rules as best i can uh gather is that you know you can't use tsmc uh you know for for the really advanced stuff but for like the the nvidia uh nvidia chips and everything but with the the other stuff like the memory and uh you know even a 14 nanometer that's still going to be fine to fab at uh, at TSMC, is my understanding, because they're not applying the foreign direct product rule. It's only a restriction on exports from the United States to uh, to those places. So I think they they on purpose applied a different level of control based on how concerned they are about the military implications of these chips. But then there's also mixed in with this a sense of economic competition. And this, I think, uh, Kevin alluded to this in the podcast you did with him earlier, Jordan where this seems to be a move back to Cold War style thinking. And I know this is something that mm. Chinese insult the United States with, but it was a longstanding U.S. policy that we wanted to keep in general a technological advantage on foundational technologies ahead of the Soviet Union and ahead of China. And for sometimes it was we wanted a bigger gap between us and China uh, because we were concerned about them exporting revolution. And and so now they're arguing that you can't really differentiate anymore between what's important for commercial and what's important for the military side, and they have to control it all. So then some of it's going to be specifically targeted to military applications like the AI stuff and others is going to be more, you know, on the economic competition side and kind of supercharging the CHIPS Act, maybe. I remember just a few years ago, like the the milsiv fusion as like the be all end all conversation you know winner was kind of like people rolled their eyes at that sort of thing um and to have it be so um you know put front and center by a centrist democrat uh just gives me the sense that like you know this is 
this this is this policy and this you know outlook towards China, whether or not it's accurate, is something that is going to be locked in for a very long time uh, to come in the um, uh, sort of American discourse and 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 policies around these things. Well, well, it, I, I think if if that's all true, then we have to come to grips with the fact that we are, uh, you know, I don't I don't want to be bombastic about it, but this is essentially, you know, economic cold war, right? Because if you start talking about broad limitations to civil military fusion or, uh, you know, civilian use, military use, civilian technology, then you're talking about cutting off large parts of China's economy, some of its most successful sectors, right? The internet, the, the, the super seven, the, the hyperscalers, Ali, Baidu, Tencent, those companies are going to get impacted by this. Uh, you start looking at the automotive sector, there's going to be potential for big, a big impact on automotive as well. And I think you start talking about hurting those industries, that's a whole different ballgame than cutting off, you know, missiles and supercomputers. Which is why the both the implicit and explicit objectives are really important to parse out here, right? So there is a, what's striking about these rules is where it talks about, you know, advanced semiconductor thresholds. It basically creates a leap that basically says advanced semiconductor thresholds defined at a 16, 14 nanometer below nonplanar transistor architecture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it could be used in a WMD application, right? So they could have set that threshold at sub 10 nanometer, sub five nanometer. You know, there are all different ways you can define this. Uh, um, and they chose, you know, a pretty hard line there of where China's already uh, developing, right? So, so that seems very intentional in terms of that freeze in place. And that WMD justification can be applied quite liberally just in the way that these rules are written. Um, and Martin, to your point on, on foreign direct product rule, I think there's a window that the U.S. is signaling here to say that this is where we're defining those thresholds. Now, our tech partners and chip four, TTC, et cetera, um, follow suit or else, you know, look, we're there's political will here uh, to resort to extraterritorial measures, um, as we're seeing in other aspects of how the U.S. person's uh, activities rule is is being applied here um, and in terms of where FDPR was used. Right. So I think this is really like a test now of how other partners uh, will choose to align. And of course, there are going to be gaps. I think the U.S. understands that. But I think the U.S.-Japan relationship is probably going to be the most important to watch here, where there does appear to be some alignment, at least on strategic intent. But this is not the way other countries like to design their export controls, right? This is a much more creative, novel approach to it. And also something we're talking about, the intention. I think something that's really interesting to me, at least, is the timing. Uh, something that I've been talking to a lot of people is, you know, what is the what is the, re the retaliation in an economic, you know, Cold War um, thing? Well, the thing that's so, I guess, brilliant, if, you know, if taking away the normative side of things, is like the timing is ridiculously well-timed. The, the economy of China is falling off a cliff. And so the historical levers they have to pull back against uh, the, the United States um, are a lot weaker, right? Uh, if you're, if you're, you know, if Chinese low-end smartphones are falling off 40% year over year, which it seems to be the case right now, and, you know, automotive sales are going down, um, you know, what, how, how much more can they cripple you? If, if, if sales are going down 20% and they're like, okay, now we're going to make, now we're not going to purchase things. Sales are now down 50%. Like it just, the magnitude of the lever they have to pull back against the United States is very, is like feels a lot smaller because of how, of the timing of this, mostly because of the zero COVID and economic like problems going on in China right now. And so like, if we're taking it from like a purely like logistics standpoint i think the timing of it was really well done from the american government um that's that's speculation on my part i i actually have a smaller some question about timing did they did they know that they're going to release the rules right ahead of the, uh, the party conference and and if you read the regs they kind of feel rushed they don't feel like like they do feel very broad and and precise at the same time so like i'm not like wow these guys have been thinking about this for years and then also we did a press release on monday right after the congress or party about like national security things like the timing doesn't seem like and this is like this is speculation to be clear the timing doesn't like the timing seems somewhat intentional that's that's my opinion 
It, it seems like there was a big lead up to this, though, right? We had a lot of clues mm-hmm. dropped over the summer. Um, the is yeah. informed letters to AMD, Nvidia. You know, Sullivan really cr- set out the sea change in policy. Um, of course, there's midterm political timing. Uh, you know, a lot of different things in play here as the U.S. is trying to get ahead of this. So, uh, yeah. lots of different drivers there, probably to factor. Yeah, I mean, what folks in the administration have told me is that we didn't plan on this being like a you know giant middle finger to the party congress but <laughs> look this is how it landed right and you know them telling me that does not change how it's going to be perceived in beijing um right. so anyways let's talk a little bit about um uh about uh potential retaliatory measures i wanted to come to this um uh this paragraph that you wrote jay uh a little while back um talking about sort of future levers that the Chinese government may have. Um, You write that we have to be cognizant that China is starting to develop industries where it occupies higher strategic ground, albeit not in semis. Those include areas such as industrial systems like machine tools, lasers, robots, electrical power systems, batteries, and more. These are not as glamorous as semis, and Chinese companies still have some ways to go. But somewhere down the road, they may become strategic enough to provide China with a little boost of leverage it does not have now. You know, I I follow... I follow venture investing in China pretty carefully, uh, as close as anybody can from this remove. And there's a lot of activity in some important categories like those. You look at machine tools, robots, lasers, those are all important industrial tools. And China's actually done really, really well in developing those. Anything around the manufacturing systems, China has, China's gotten very good at manufacturing, and that includes you know, tools that go into that system. We don't necessarily import a lot of those today, but they do a lot of export business in those companies. Um, batteries, like you look at CATLs, investing in batteries all over the place, right? And, you know, in, in this country, we're obviously, or everywhere, we're talking more about electric vehicles and electrification of everything. Um, you know, China's very, very actively in, involved in a lot of these important things. They have a lot of battery capacity. And um, I don't think we're seeing the same level of investment in the US or anywhere else from what we're seeing in China. We have this, just this week, CATL is talking about trying to get Tesla as a, as a partner, as a customer. Um, you know, what, what happens five years down the road when China has been investing heavily in battery, dirty, polluting battery factories that are then going into clean vehicles, um, they're going to have that capacity and we, we may not. And I, I think, I mean, taking a step back, my, my bigger concern than the restrictions is what kinds of steps is the U S government taking to encourage developing all these new technologies? That, that's an area I would love to see them do more constructive work on chips act was a start but there's a lot more that the government could be doing sort of more positive uh the sort of more constructive side of we're going to you know go toe-to-toe with china let's what are we doing on the constructive side to help our new industries new technologies emerge so doug um you know say you are you're sitting in mit and you want to screw over american microelectronics what's you know what's in your uh playbook and how are you weighing the um advantages and disadvantages of the various uh paths first i think i would look at everything that's done in hong kong first and foremost there's actually a lot of uh, distribution done there um so i know that's kind of been already already called out by some of the companies that they end up doing a lot of distribution like kind of like the logistics there and then um, packaging is probably the place that they have that china has relative advantage to us um compared to Compared to the U.S., like there's just no there's no packaging done in the United States effectively, and like I would love to see that changed. But um, and this this includes advanced packaging. This includes not so advanced packaging. But there, like at the end of the day, whenever you make a semiconductor, you still have to put it into a PCB or whatever form factor you want to then make the device. Like there is an intermediate step, but and obviously that intermediate step is a lot lower value than like let's say actually fabbing the chip. But there is a huge choke point there, and. Um, I think that they could probably flex that, but I think the problem with that is that the if you pull that lever really hard, uh, OSATs, uh, so OSATs, what is it? Something testing and assembly, uh, outsourced uh, something, outsourced yes. uh, testing and outsourced. assembly, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. sorry, I forget my acronyms all the time. Um, and so like if you if you if you really push that really hard, OSATs are not like a crazy business. It is a little human capital intensive. So but like you could pull that lever and move that to Malaysia or Southeast Asia really quickly. And so that's like kind of the problem is that if you push too hard on that lever too quickly, that just further encourages 
um, companies leaving their ASAP, which is already happening to a certain extent. People are are you know diversifying their supply chains away from China, and that's mostly through uh, other Southeast Asian countries, which are lower lower costs anyway. So um, that's kind of like the problem, I guess, if that makes sense. So yeah, maybe that will hurt in the extremely short run, but that is that will be um, a Punic victory in a three or five year period. I mean, the the bottom line is China doesn't have a lot of great levers to respond with anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, it, it just underscores the unreliability factor for China, right? And at a point of extreme economic weakness, which is probably what went into the timing as well for the U.S. and and unleashing this as a as a barrage of controls, right? It wasn't incrementally trickled out by any means. Um, and so, when other areas, though, um, maybe less uh, just obvious or explicit is uh, just the anti competition element. So when we look at China's long arm uh tools and the arsenal that it's built um you know there was a, a an article recently where china was basically congratulating itself on building up these extraterritorial measures and obviously it wants to mirror the us um in that kind of leverage but it doesn't have the same punch not even nearly um not even close right so anti-foreign sanctions law that's really been just symbolically applied uh and to entities that really don't have a whole lot of exposure in china uh so if this now that the u.s is moving to next level tech controls on china uh if if china does take the gloves off and and targets companies that are more exposed in china that face more domestic competition that would be interesting and i think it's it's a real risk that we have to look at um but in the anti-competition realm samr has had real leverage, right? A real ability to disrupt uh, M&As. And if you look at that in parallel to the U.S.-led French-shoring current, um, where inevitably this is going to involve tie-ups and all kinds of deals to coordinate supply chains and get more vertical integration. And um, this is where, you know, you could see some movement um, from, from SAMR as some big deals come on the radar. What questions do you guys have for each other? I have I have questions not necessarily for the group, but as the three things I would love to hear from the people who wrote the the regulations, right? Which are in 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 crafting these rules, which which agencies showed up and really did their homework, and who phoned it in? Because it it feels like some <laughs> some some people did more work than others. Yeah, us, right? And uh, how, how so? And then, how so? Well, I, we were talking about it earlier. Some things are incredibly specific, like the rules around uh, AI performance. Like they specify T-ops, T-flops, uh, like really, really precise numbers. Like who came up with those numbers? And um, other areas, it's just like supercomputers. Yeah. Uh, a good example of place that I feel very comfortable, they go ham on metals deposition. Like they don't talk about yeah. tools once, but they talk about metals deposition like 14 different types, the different types of metals, the different types of like processes. They go like in depth on ALD and then they don't talk about etch once. And you're like, what the hell? Like, this is really weird. Whoever did the the etch part of it, like, you know, mailed it in and whoever did the the deposition, like became an industry expert. Cause I was like, I was like, wow, this is very comprehensive. So, so I thought that was like interesting. I mean, that's like kind of the reason why I guess yeah. I feel, I mean, this is like maybe a vibes thing the whole thing feels a little rushed because it like when you read it it does not it feels like very disjointed right there's like like the the metals deposition part was this like mind-blowingly specific if that makes sense and then they talk about like ion ion implantation which is something that i know a little bit about and i'm like this is so vague it could mean the entire set of tools that have ever been made so it doesn't like you know it just it, it just kind of that that's that's something that i really am curious about as well. You know, yeah, what it might I, I, be is like there is someone in the national labs who knows, right. who really knows yes. something about X. And like yes. they actually just couldn't find someone in the system to help them get up to speed about why. Um, mm -hmm. I, my guess would be it's that sort of thing as opposed to like a grand strategic thing or like some no, person I, yeah. mailing it in. It's like there's just yeah. expertise, like there is limited expertise in the US government on this stuff. And I think it's probably pretty spiky um, for certain things yeah. and not others. And, you know, whoever's job it was to write this had, you know, a really good contact uh, within the system that they could trust to help them uh, to help them help them write this sort of stuff. Um, 
again, this is speaking not so that, from that's, any that knowledge, a, but that yeah. actually leads to my second question, which is, um, I think uh, Kevin on your show uh, last last uh, week, he, he he was was really clear that the rules, the the timing between announcement and implementation of the rules was that window was deliberately very very short. And and I understand he, he had they had valid reasons for keeping that window tight, but it's it's the kind of thing that opens up all sorts of unintended consequences. So in the rush to get the rules out, there was no consultation within, or very little consultation with industry. And so my question now is, when the authors were putting this together, to what extent did they war game or think through some scenarios of what's going to happen next? Like, did they did they actually do any war gaming or planning, or? Or to sort of say, oh, that's going to be unintended consequences. We'll see what happens. YOLO. There's a there's a great line in the SME section, which it basically says, you know, the urgency behind this uh, basically makes us uh, or has led us to implement these, you know, effective immediately. Uh, but we'd love to hear what you have to say about it. So send <laughs> us your comments, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> which I thought that was very cleverly uh, phrased. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing here, but it, it's not too far off. Right. Um, yeah. And so it, it also kind of raises a question in the disparity of, um, you know, how much quality industry input was coming from the tool makers versus, you know, the chip makers, uh, you know, and in designing a policy like this. Um, and you're, you're you definitely see some gaps there, just in terms of that two way communication, and uh, yeah, not a whole lot of voice coming from the SME front. I've, I've heard it's even further than that. I've heard that it was deliberately they wanted to keep certain industry bodies out of the process because they I, have yeah a lot of lobbying weight. I was I was gonna say uh, so on the lamb. So I've been like you know I I follow the earnings calls. The lamb research call was despondent like. The management yeah. team was despondent. Like, there's no other way to put it. They they definitely were like, we had no say in this. This is going to hurt the crap out of our company. Uh, we can't even quantify. We have no idea. Like, we're so flat-footed. We're so offsides. No one really gave a, a heads up at all. Uh, like, that's that's at least my, my vibes reading of the whole thing because they really are just like, we don't know. We'll try to quantify it. We're struggling to quantify it. We, we can't quantify it today. Like, it sounds like no one gave them a heads up at all. Um, and then, I mean... It, then like you know at the same time i think um pat gelsinger is out here doing like he's out there Somersaults. you know doing yeah he's doing somersaults he's doing a press <laughs> release he's like doing interviews and stuff so it's like i'm sure pat was definitely in on it so it's like this weird like there definitely seems to be um a very difference in in where I, i'm guessing the more punitive it is the less they talk to you unfortunately their There's, their like biggest lobby was the one year uh, temporary license, which I thought was really crazy. They're like, hey, I know that this could mess up supply chains. Here's a one year. Here is a like you know we granted temporary license to these South Korean companies, and then they that's already been extended to a one year. But it's like you know it's it's shoot first, ask later, and here's a temporary license that we can use as a way to 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 draw like you know to fix ourselves, but also continue to have leverage. Like it's very you're you're right. It's very different in tone. Yeah. Now, there's just an interesting dynamic in play here where obviously BIS is creating a lot of work for itself, right? It's ballooning regulations. It's severely understaffed already. So you could take that and infer that, well, there's no way that this can be enforced uh, adequately. On the other hand, um, when you have limited resources, uh, you make an example um, out of of companies, right, to draw broader compliance. And we're in an interesting phase right now where we're coming off, you know, uh, CHIPS uh, Act funding uh, passage and all of that is now in play in the implementation phase. And the government probably feels like it has some leverage, right, considerable leverage over the major recipients of those funds uh, to to comply, that these are the conditions attached, that there is intent to uh, you know, steer production and, um, you know, high performance computing chips away from from Chinese access. So, yeah, that that kind of push and pull, um, I, I there was probably a lot of uh, going into government assumptions and coming out with these controls now and then expectation on compliance, because there's an acknowledgement in these controls that this is hard. This is really hard to get the technical thresholds right. Civil military fusion is just really, really complicated for regulators to wrap their hands around. So guess what? We won't, right? The U.S. is basically saying, 
the the onus is on Chinese entities to demonstrate their bona fides or else guess what you're on the unverified list which is a shortcut to the, the BIS entity list or worse um, if you end up getting FDPR'd. Um, and there's also a compliance burden shift to the companies to say, look, we're saying advanced semiconductors could have WMD application, full stop. Now it's up to you to basically restrict yourself um, based on these these guidelines that we're giving you. I think that CHIPS Act uh, leverage is a really, really good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. It's a really good point because I, I mean, if you look at all the stuff that's, you know, happened over the last four years, starting with Huawei and ZTE, the biggest force working against all the government's rules are U.S. companies themselves, right? That's where the, that's where the loopholes are coming from. That's where the ar- army of lawyers looking through all the, all the wording and parsing every word of all the restrictions is, is very strong. And I think the, the authors of these latest restrictions were very cognizant of that fact. Um, and are and now and now we're going to see how it actually gets implemented because we've already heard we've already had a bunch of waivers go out like i think intel got a waiver a bunch of other companies got waivers very early on they were consulted now now it's i'm watching to see who else gets waivers Does kla lamb any of those companies get significant waivers um because ultimately that's going to you know we've been talking before about how the devil is going to be in the details of implementation and a big part of that will be how how we treat the U.S. companies who want to continue selling different products. I mean, here we are four years later, four years later, Huawei is still shipping base stations and phones, right? They've, you know, not a lot of them, but they're still able to do it. And they're sourcing yeah. U.S. parts somehow. Jim makes a really important point about the firm's response to these restrictions uh, being being crucial. But I think we should also interact them with the uh, with the inducements that the U.S. has also put in to the Chips Act. So the firms that have agreed through receiving funding in the Chips Act and setting up more some other conductor related activity in the United States have already agreed to guardrails that they're not going to expand uh, and in some cases upgrade their uh, semiconductor activities in China. And these restrictions could, in a sense, supercharge that by making those decisions even even more clear uh, for them, because whether they accept the CHIPS Act funding or not, they won't be able to make those investments uh, in, in China because they probably will not be able to get the most updated advanced equipment going forward if they only have these uh, potentially shaky waivers in the short short term. But they could also, in a sense, undermine some of the CHIPS Act inducements to bring firms to the United States because, you know, you might decide if you're a firm that it has a lot of business in China, that you would rather excise as much U.S. technology and U.S. components from your equipment or supply chains or other processes as possible so that the U.S. can't have any of this long arm jurisdiction on you. So I would, I would love to ask Jay and Doug uh, what you think the prospects are for firms doing exactly this, which is managing to get as, so much U.S. technology out of their products that they're able to continue to sell to China, even if the U.S. tries to put something like FDPR on them. So something that's really uh, weird about semiconductors is that in a lot of ways, the ways that semiconductors have been made is almost identical to when they were made, essentially when the industry was birthed 50 years ago. Um, essentially, it's 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 almost all the same steps, but just miniaturized. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why America has so much long-term IP, because they invented it, and it's almost the same, just a million times, you know, a billion times smaller or something like that. Um, and so that's like kind of the hard part. It's really hard for you to step out of the like, just because, you know, semiconductors are a very cumulative effort. It's taken so long to get here. And it's, it's, it's been a village, right? Um, a good example is ASML recently on their earnings call said, hey, we are not going to be as impacted by this because we're a European company. We're shipping European goods. Maybe we'll have some spares in the US. Um, but I'm almost positive that what's going to happen is that the BIS has an has a leverage to go has a lever to go after them because one of the meaningful subsystems parts is made in the United States. It's a San Diego based company. So it's like these, you know, there it's really, really hard because of how much entrenchment there is. And the one place where you have an opportunity to maybe go outside of the the American the American like, you know, 
I guess the moat or whatever, the village of American semicap companies is Japan. Japan definitely is the only, and, and part of that reason is because Japan was around in the beginning too. And, you know, a lot of these same companies that are competing against American companies were competing against Japanese, uh, uh, were competing against them back in the 1980s as well. So, um, but there's kind of that second, that second level there that Japan and, and the United States, their relationship is extremely tight, uh, tightly woven together too. So, I think that there is ways to eventually get there in some of the extremely more um, commoditized processes of the semiconductor, you know, fabrication stack, if that makes sense. Like um, CMP is not the craziest thing ever. And I think that if you give anyone a sufficient amount of time and resources, they could figure it out. But it's going to take a lot of time and it's going to take a lot of resources. And that's before we even have a working product. And so there are some places where I think there's a potential um, but you know, there's, it takes a thousand steps to make a semiconductor and you're going to have to get, um, and, and a lot of the steps are duplicative to be clear, but you're going to have to, you're going to have to get them all right. You can't just get, you know, you can't just really nail your one step and be like, well, now we can make a semiconductor. It takes, it takes a village. It takes a lot of, uh, parts. Uh, Jay, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I think if, if you look at the history of this, uh, SMIC, the Shanghai foundry has been poaching staff from TSMC since its inception, I mean, for 20 years, and they still have not been able to close the, the gap. Um, I think there is a, an important distinction here between technical capability and commercial capabilities, because I, I, I'm sure that there is some research lab in, in China somewhere that can, can you know, has a, a small EUV system and can produce five nanometer chips, but they can't do it at scale, right? They can't do, you know, they can do a wafer a day as opposed to, you know, 30,000 a month, like, that's sad yeah. to do the the, big, the engineering the engineering is crazy like that's one of the reasons why i love the industry is like you know these things are moving around at like i i want to say like multiple g's like they're it's very precise it's all in a vacuum like you know it's one thing to make one wafer but it's another thing to make thousands of wafers with 99.999 percent accuracy over and over and over again and that's like yeah. the real problem and so and that's where yeah this is a cumulative benefit is like, Hey, if this is all you've ever been doing since the 1980s and you, ha you, you owned the market back then you own the market today, all that cumulative knowledge and experience comes with you. So, yeah. um, that's, that's yeah. kind of the heart. That's the real hard part. I, 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 I think, I think, th I think this really speaks to the, to the bigger challenge China faces is it's not just about an, an you know, point technology. It's about processes and management systems. Right. You look at TSMC and ASML, like the real choke points and leading edge. Those two companies are very good at managing incredibly complicated systems. Like that's their real expertise. It's not the machine itself. It's, it's the way they organize all this activity. And having lived and worked in China for a very long time, I think this is an area where China really struggles is sort of management practices and management philosophies. Like, you know, remember when, when Japan, when, maybe you all probably do remember this, but in the eighties, when everyone, you know, J everyone was worried that Japan was going to be this rising star and eclipse the U S economy, we actually adapted a lot of Japanese process technologies, management philosophies, like Kanban, things like that. We, we brought those into, into the U S there are all kinds of books written about it. You don't see the same thing happening with China's rise. You don't have, you know, wolf, wolf management skills being adapted into U S tech firms. You should, it's, uh, it's a, I, I have on my uh, I have on my wall. There's like like Huawei's written a few of these books, and uh, well, I mean there are a million of these books in Chinese, but there are, they've translated a few in English as well. Um, I do want to come back to this idea of um, okay, you can you know set you can do a wafer a day in a lab. Um, if you can do a wafer a day in a lab, you can probably make enough for your missile systems. No, and if so, like then then it really is just an economic competition. Well, I was going to say slight pushback. I mean, you can make some wafers, but okay. So even a good example is uh, right now there's actually, um, there was a really good article I read the other day talking about how Russia is forced to import Chinese chips in order to uh, support their military operations. And the yield, the effective yield of that is like 60%, meaning 40% of the chips that they're making have defects. And this is, this is like lagging edge technology. This is like, this is not rocket science at all. Um, this and this is tools available, like presumably from American tools with processes, like stuff that's. This is a solved problem, and they're having forty yeah. percent defect yields. Um, I mean, yes, maybe you can make some artisanal handmade uh, rockets, but it just doesn't. Uh, <laughs> you, we're 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 looking for scale, right? In 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 a real in a real, it, it's all about your total manufacturing at the end of the day, and and you can just 
it, it just won't be the same. It, even if you do it in batches or whatever, we're talking about you know the entire output of the entire academic system. You know, making batch right. wafers would be equal to like three hours at TSMC. So, Jay. but but to your to your broader point, I actually I do think that that our ability to really really restrict the PLA from getting advanced chips, it, it's we're, it's it's going to be a big struggle. I think we're going to have a very hard time doing it. It's just the supply chain is so porous. They're not going to need to go to the to the academic academic institutes in China. They're going to get them on the open market through dozens of shell companies and complex distributions channels. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How many, and, how and many of these chips get sold a year? Yeah. Millions. Yeah. And then the other thing too is like, okay, so I understand the AI part of it where like that obviously needs a high-end A100, A100, H100 chip from NVIDIA, but like missiles do not really need that, right? Like most of this is like, a, my understanding is FPGAs are like the du jour uh, product in for military applications. And a lot of times, I don't think they're cutting edge FPGAs. Like a twenty, a twenty nanometer FPGA is probably more than enough. Uh, you could just like throw more of them in there. It's not like it takes a ton of space. And so that's for like missiles, I guess. Um, I'm I'm gonna guess that like AI stuff where it becomes truly you know technologically crazy is a, a different story. But I don't think it really requires that much um, in terms of, it's like an engineering problem. It definitely makes it a lot easier, if that makes sense. Like if you had a leading edge FPGA, you'd be doing a lot more. It'd be a lot better and a lot easier. But I don't think this is where, like you can't just really stop that altogether. Like it, the technology is is um, mature enough. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's like some super classified future war things that, yeah. that is where this it, stuff matters. Yeah, I... I think if we look at it in the context of Ukraine, where there's there are a lot of tactical munitions that are that smart, all these high mark systems that have guided munitions in tactical launchers, that's a that's a much bigger volume than if we're talking about strategic cruise missiles and ICBMs. Because um, I, I think Doug's right for IC, for those kinds of things, you, you you have a lot of space in in the vehicle, so you don't need very small chips, and power is less of an issue, but if you want to do it at scale where you sort of give every, every infantryman a thousand smart munitions, then space. And every bullet smart, you know, every bullet yeah. smart, every rocket smart, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, so well short of, of the military application here, um, there's an interesting kind of underlying policy debate here of should the U S maintain and grow a strategic one way dependency with China, meaning that China remains highly dependent on the U.S. for critical inputs, uh, you know, especially for mature technologies, um, you know, that that go into more commercial spaces. And even in the Chips Act guardrails, there was a provision in there that basically said, "Okay, we're saying don't, you know, increase production in China." It set the threshold at that point at 28 nanometer, but. It also said something to the effect that if you're going to be producing in China for the China market, that's okay, um, you know, at that more mature threshold. So that gets undermined if you go too far with your controls, right? Because once you get to an FDPR level control, you're getting to a level of blacklisting that undermines that strategic one-way dependency argument. You're not going to be able to sell to those Chinese entities. You're not going to be able to grow that dependency, right? Um, and I think that's just something that I don't hear talked about that much in in the longer term policy debate. But I, it seems like a critical question to to contemplate on what the U.S. wants to get out of this. I, I think it's it's very interesting that in all of this there is this presumption of success on on behalf of China's semis complex. Like we're assuming that oh, there's they have this incredible capability. We they're very very capable, and I think the in some senses, the opposite is true, right? Over the past decade, they spent, what, $100 billion plus, and they have not actually advanced their ability to manufacture chips at all. The gap between SMIC and TSMC is just as wide as it was 10 years ago. The domestic uh, wafer fabrication equipment industry is is not capable. They don't have EDA tools. Um, they've had a lot of success on the fabulous side, lots of thousands of companies doing chip designs, but you know, they're all as dependent on TSMC as everyone else. Uh, and so there, there is a, you know, a reasonable argument to be made that, hey, if, you're, if your adversary is making mistakes, don't, you know, don't, don't stop them, right? If they spent $100 billion last decade, let's see if we can just let them keep going and get them to spend $200 billion this decade. 
So I, I I do agree that it's been very hard for them, but I want to push back a little bit on 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 the struggles, right? Because YMTC is a perfect counterexample of that, right? Um, where they they really do have a technology roadmap that's as good as the Western companies, uh, essentially. Um, but at the same time, I also think that the 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 SMIC the SMIC has had some uh, grenades thrown in in their process along the way. So like, I really wonder if SMIC had no export controls, the Huawei thing never happened. They never had like they never were ever stopped. If that makes sense, would that would that um that gap be shorter? I think yes. I mean, like historically, if you look at the the catch-up of Asian economy, so like there's actually a really good book on this if you're interested. It's extremely academic, but it's called Tiger Technology. It talks about oh, each yeah. decade, uh, each decade of, of semiconductor countries essentially catching up. And and the, the playbook is the same. The, the government heavily incentivize, uh, heavily subsidizes loans, does all kinds of stuff for to prop up a semiconductor industry. They make tons of losses, are meaningfully behind, but they close that gap and then eventually, ever so slightly, they become a leader. So this happened in uh, J- Japan, obviously, then Korea, then Taiwan. And so that, like, China literally just found the playbook. They're like, let's do it. They are, they're applying the exact playbook. And I would, um, and, and I know that it's been very hard because, uh, honestly, this, like, is a post-Moore's Law era. Things are getting harder in, in fabrication. But I don't think that given infinite time and infinite resources, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have you know, done everything else that history has done as well. So um, I don't know, somewhere between those two, I, I, I do, I do agree. There's a lot of failure uh, in, in the process. Like there's been a lot of high f- profile failure for Chinese semiconductor industries. So I, I agree with that economic framework in Tiger, in the Tiger Economies book, or, but the, there's a key step there, which is they can close the gap, but actually transitioning to being a leader is much harder. And the number of economies that have actually founded on that is is very long. You go look at sort of long term historical uh, economic historic history. That transition from a middle sort of the middle income trap and being able to transition then to becoming a world leader is is very very difficult. And there's no, um, I don't I don't think it was guaranteed that they would succeed um, because like I agree, YMTC hugely capable, incredible incredible product. They they got what twenty billion, thirty billion in subsidies. Mm. Right. Name name the second one. What's the what's the next company we put on that list? There, re- there really isn't a second. That's that's the thing that right. makes it so so interesting because and then like right now there's actually a, a whole profile of news of like there's a lot of pushback of like people are getting axed essentially because of their high profile failures of of being given billions of dollars and have nothing and having essentially nothing to speak of it. Um, not, not axed, arrested, arrested. Yeah, sorry, arrested, <laughs> arrested, and going to reeducation camp. Okay, like there's. Um, <laughs> Um, but, but there's, so, so yeah, I, I think on, if we're talking on like a pure capitalism dollars invested, we, I don't think ever, uh, we ever thought that China would be like the greatest ROA or the greatest ROE of that capital. Like, I don't think it was ever implied that there was going to be a good economic return. And essentially my thought process is they would, they would earn ROE similar to the SOEs, which is like you know, mid, low single digits, right? So as long as they hit that required negative. rate of... Re- <laughs> okay, okay. So negative. the publicly list... I, I know they're negative, okay? Um, but like, <laughs> I, I mean, I think there's like three that have like 2% ROEs or something, which is pretty... That's horrendous. Um, <laughs> but but anyway, so like, hey, if you got a 0% ROE on, on you know, $100 billion for the Chinese semiconductor industry, I think the state would be okay with that. Um, and yeah, that would be considered yeah, as long point. as you, as long as you can deliver the goods and, you know, exactly. you get your global market share and you're able to sort of help out the PLA when they need it. Um, and that's not quite where we're at and yeah. getting there is going to be more buckets of tens of billions of dollars with a, with a definitely uncertain future of whether or not this is even, uh, this is even the, possible. The, the roadmap looks to be getting harder, especially after the export controls for sure. Um, there was definitely a, a shot, a hope, a chance. Um, but we essentially have totally cut off the next five years window, I think. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Not 10 years. Five, 10, 10 years. Yeah. Is there an opportunity here for U.S. firms to take advantage of the talent displacement caused by the regulation around U.S. persons? So in the short term, uh, it looks like the semi-cycle is definitely beating out um, the 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 brain, the long term. Because I mean, one year ago, everyone's biggest problem was we don't have enough talent. Uh, this year, it looks like there's already variable 
cost cuts. Intel's probably going to do some layoffs. Like there's already, already things are coming down the chain. Something I think that's actually a little interesting that I've put a lot of thought about into is that uh, in the United States, the actual fabrication process is actually very concentrated and essentially Intel. Um, so there really isn't a market, if that makes sense, versus TSMC. And TSMC obviously is the market. Like, like in the United States, there really isn't a lot of competitive workplaces. Like it's Micron or Intel, and essentially you're going to be going to either or. And so I think that's like kind of a problem because it really stymies the like extremely, um, I guess we'll say like ambitious ones where it's like, hey, I have some versus it's like you're going to e be either working for Team Blue or Team uh, red or something. There's only two choices. So I think that that's something I wish um, there was more of is that there's like more actual American fabrication competition so that there's actually more places to work and more opportunity and it feels like a more vibrant ecosystem. Um, and, and I think that's like one of the biggest advantages of Taiwan that there just is such a deep ecosystem that the United States doesn't have. Closing thoughts? My main kind of long-term thought on this is just where we are on the escalation ladder, right? Parallel to this yes. is the Taiwan escalation ladder, right? And now we have the, the tech control escalation ladder. And those two cross over in really interesting ways. Uh, and so when you just think like kind of in a beyond 2024 scenario and how really potent rules you know, under the IEPA national security umbrella or under this, you know, new package of BIS export controls, how those are applied really, really matter. You can take a precision, you know, approach or you can take a really blunt approach. And if you push China toward an existential crisis, that could have some really, really big effects. And I think that's that's something that weighs heavily on the minds of U.S. partners. Yeah. Uh, Japan has experience with this, uh, with the U.S., uh, you know, if you look at history um, and being pushed in a quarter like that, right, and, and what you resort to and, and situations like that. Um, and I think Europe now looking at uh, the, the war on its, its own continents, right, is really, really hesitant to push China this far um, when it's already dealing um, with some, what looks like 20th century problems, right, creeping into to this century. So that's that's kind of the longer term concern that I have. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's very much still an open question whether this stuff raises or lowers the chance of conflict. Um, I, I, uh, I think I think Riva, Riva raises the key point in all this is what comes next is is very important and the escalation ladder. Um, if I if I were to pick a second order priority for me is now that we've just bought ourselves a ten year window. What are we going to do with it, right? Are we going to push, you know, are we going to spend all this money pushing lagging edge technologies, or are we going to actually try and invest in things that matter, things that are new, right? That's always the, the drawback of a planned economy is you're building last centuries, you know, railways and hydro plants. What are we going to build for the 21st, 22nd century, you know, power systems, quantum computing, new models of, of compute. That, that to me is, you know, how, how are we going to spend the next few years focused on beating China or focused on building what's important and what's new and what's coming next. Anyone got a song? Come on, chip song. I don't have a chip song, man. How, how big an industry do you have to be to get a song? I mean, this is ridiculous. I don't think it's a question of size. It's kind of a question of, you know, Cultural. personnel dynamics, you know, you know. Okay. <laughs> I, I, Very I, lightly I phrased. In, yeah, personally. Right. <laughs> I, I've I've worked in semiconductors for for a long time, and, and I'll go visit my friends who work at Google and Facebook and Twitter with their in-house massages and their twenty-seven free cafeterias. I'm I'm you know they can have songs. I'm just I'm just excited when when the employer has a coffee machine. And the <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of Chat Talk, everyone. This is a lot of fun. Yeah,是有点为你拿着手情歌，Please Bye,
下个半夜，望着两座塔的 reference， 听着这一上的 taste， 那里浮现你跟着唱的脸，嘴下的尖，光亮房间都是你的身影。Oh shit， 上的人放了你的 playlist， 谁说也许你会爱上的情歌，在你的自动播放清单的情歌，也许有天会听到这首情歌。Please tell me how you doing， how you doing， doing。连我个跑得很远 ，Only me， 下一站闯红门。Be answer my phone， 你的位置来的有多的好去痛。Oh shit， 上天的人放着你的 playlist， 谁说也许你会爱上的情歌，在你的自动播放清单的情歌，也许有天会听到这首情歌。Please tell me how you doing，how you doing doing。